Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And we are very happy to bring you a new episode. As you may know, in a lot of our episodes, we try to build bridges between biblical studies and theology because we think that the two should not be separated. And in this episode, this is one of those episodes, Matt Bates interviews Kyle Hughes about the development of thinking about the Trinity and how that's grounded in a particular exegetical technique in the early church known as prosopological exegesis. And Kyle talks about how that contributes to our understanding of the divinity of the Spirit, uh, which is kind of a neglected area in uh, the study of Trinitarian doctrine, uh, particularly in the early church. So we hope you enjoy this. Um, also, we might do a listener Q&A soon, so please send any questions to onscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. And give us a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. That would be very helpful. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to OnScript. Today we are in my very favorite place in the world, that is... We are straddling the fence between scripture and theology. No, that's not quite good enough. What we're doing today is we're walking the ridge line between scripture and theology because we're high up. We can see for miles. We're doing the highest and best sort of interaction because we're looking at how scripture reveals divine persons who bear witness to themselves. That is, we are doing theologia, theology proper thinking about how scripture helps us best speak about God's unity and diversity. And we're doing it with my friend Kyle Hughes and the early church fathers. I think we've got an exciting conversation for you today. I'm your OnScript host, Matthew Bates. And I've got Kyle with me. This is the moment, Kyle, where our guests are supposed to say something awkward. Can you do that? Uh, Very awkward. Uh, Good morning. Uh, It's great to be with you, Matt, and I look forward to this conversation with you. (laughs) <laughs> All right. You know, that was that was nice and stilted, you know. Um yeah, that opener is always, you know, um a little bit, you know, a little bit a little bit awkward. So it's good to just kind of embrace its awkwardness. Um uh, <laughs> thanks, Kyle. Uh you've written a smashing book, Kyle, just released this past summer, published by Brill. You all ready for the title? Here's the title. It's this is Kyle R. Hughes, The Trinitarian Testimony of the Spirit prosopological exegesis, and the development of pre-Nicene pneumatology. Uh, This is published by Brill in their Vigiliae Christianae series, Um, and I think it's a really important book, perhaps the most important book, uh, that has been written on the Holy Spirit's own divinity and how that contributed to the growth of the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, Kyle, can we open with one of those huge theological questions, the kind that stretch all of us? Yes, let's go for it. Uh, what's your favorite kind of sandwich? Favorite kind of sandwich? Um, I've suddenly become into pesto. Uh, I also like any kind of barbecue sandwich. Um, and finally, it's taken about seven years into my marriage, but I've finally got my wife into barbecue. Um, so the odds of me being able to eat more barbecue are going up. 
That's a good thing. That's that's a that's a good marital move. Um, so I asked this question partly because uh, the last time I saw you, Kyle, uh, it was with uh, uh, you and our friend Greg Barnhill. Um, hi, Greg, if you're listening. Uh, and we were eating lunch at a sandwich shop in Denver, and uh, you guys took me to this sandwich place. And I remember, hey, I was into barbecue that day, too, because I got smoked beef brisket. So that was pretty great. I, I, think, um, I think you had said that it was the best sandwich you ever had. And Greg's quip to that was there's probably not a whole lot of very exciting sandwich places near where Matthew lives. Yeah, that's that might be true. I'm, I'm in small city, Illinois. Um, but, uh, hey, you know, uh, smoked meat is awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I mean, you guys might have even paid for my sandwich. I'm not I'm not certain. But, you know, it's it's possible that you did. And I'm mainly pointing this out to on script listeners just to point out that I can be bribed. <laughs> uh, sugar won't do it. Uh, but if you're going to try to bribe me, you know, uh, smoked meat uh, is certainly the way to do it. Well, Kyle and OnScript listeners, if you uh, haven't uh, gathered this already by this point, I'm a huge fan of Justin Martyr. Um, So I think as a way of introducing Kyle's project here, um, maybe we can start with a quote from Justin Martyr. And I think it's fair to say uh, that this is a quote uh, that is at the heart of Kyle's project here on a Trinitarian Testimony of the Spirit. So I'm going to be reading from Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo uh, from the 56th chapter. Justin says this, It is not only because of this, and then here he quotes, uh, and he says that I said that in every way it is necessary to admit that, beside the one considered maker of all things, some other was called Lord by the Holy Spirit, not only through Moses, but also through David, when he said, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, as I have quoted before. Justin then continues, And again, in other words, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Justin then wraps this up. He says, tell me, he says to Trifo, then if you think that the Holy Spirit, notice he says the Holy Spirit calls another God and Lord besides the Father of all things and his Christ. Uh, is it fair to say, Kyle, that this is an important uh, passage for your project? Uh, maybe you could say a little bit about how and why. Absolutely. Um, I want to back up a little bit, though, and with Justin talk about another passage, uh, which is in his first apology, chapter 36. Uh, I think you might have frightened people by giving them the full name of my, of my book's title. And so we should probably you know, go back and explain what prosopological exegesis, this big, scary-sounding phrase, actually means. Um, Justin describes it in First Apology 36. Um, and what he's doing is he's saying that in the scriptures, because they're all authored by the divine Logos, that this divine Logos can take on different persona. Sometimes the Logos speaks as from the person of God, sometimes as from the person of Christ, and as we'll see here, sometimes even from the person of the Holy Spirit. And I think we're familiar with this because even within the New Testament itself, 
the writers of the New Testament are drawing on Old Testament dialogical passages and reading into them conversations between especially the father and the son. And so one of the ones that was picked up um, in this passage with dialogue with Trifo uh, is from Psalm 110. And you think about just Psalm 110.1, where the psalmist writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And very early on, even within the New Testament itself, this is being read as a conversation between the Father and the Son. Um, and that's an example of what uh, we in the scholarly, scholarly world like to call prosopological exegesis. And before we get back to uh, Justin and the dialogue, Matt, I know you've written a lot on prosopological exegesis. So anything that you want to add on, on that as a general topic? Uh, no, I think that was a beautiful introduction to it. Obviously, yeah, you don't need to persuade me uh, that prosopological exegesis is the coolest thing in the world, uh, as I, <clears throat> I'm already into this uh, and deeply in, and uh, <clears throat> I'm glad that you, uh, are, you are in also. We, we have to be the apostles to the world. Uh, about about prosopological exegesis. So, um, how about how about you continue on from there a little bit? Like, uh, why are you excited about it? And um, specifically, how how does this um, connect to your kind of large scale ideas in the book about Trinitarian testimony, specifically being connected to the Spirit's role uh, within prosopological exegesis? Yeah. So let's think about this passage uh, that you quoted from Justin's dialogue with Trifo. Um, It's very interesting because this passage suggests that the Holy Spirit is also capable of participating in divine dialogues found in the pages of the Old Testament. And I'm excited about this particular passage, which became a springboard for this book, because previous works on this topic of prosopological exegesis Um, whether it be those that you've written or other scholars have written, have done lots and lots of work on when early Christian writers identify the Father and the Son speaking in Old Testament dialogues. But really hardly, really nothing has been written on the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, Your book, Birth of the Trinity, which is a fantastic book, um, I'm not even being bribed to say that, uh, but for a book called Birth of the Trinity, there's only three pages on the Spirit. Um, so you left me the... <laughs> so you're not the only person who's noticed that, yeah. And I think it's true that it is a genuine weakness in the project. And um, I think you do a lot to address that. Uh, and so, yeah, keep yeah, going. So keep you going. left me a nice opening to then consider, well, are there instances in which early Christian writers uh, appeal to the Holy Spirit as... Uh, a divine person capable of engaging in dialogue with other divine persons. And so the first step of my project was to go through all of the pre-Nicene Christian writings, so New Testament, Apostolic Fathers, um, into the 2nd, 3rd, early 4th centuries, and look through every page of their writings and look for potential examples in which the Holy Spirit Uh, is presented as speaking uh, as its own person in one of these Old Testament dialogues. And I found that, in fact, there are a small handful, primarily in Justin, 
Irenaeus and Tertullian. And what I did then was looking at those passages, could I find some kind of common theme that explained why these early Christian writers were assigning particular Old Testament dialogical passages to the Spirit. And we see, I think, the answer to it already here in this passage from Dialogue with Trifo, uh, where at the end of the passage you quoted, Matt, Justin writes, tell me then if you think that the Holy Spirit calls another God and Lord besides the Father of all things and his Christ. Uh, the verbs here are kuria legeo and thea legeo. Um, these verbs will be picked up in Irenaeus and will have the Latin equivalents in Tertullian. And it seems like there's this pretty clear correlation between when the Holy Spirit is presented as speaking in dialogue with the Father and the Son in the pages of the Old Testament and the Spirit's function in calling the Father and the Son by these titles of God and Lord. And it's that that I then call the Trinitarian testimony of the Spirit, that the Spirit's personhood seems to be inextricably linked with its function of calling Father and Son both God and Lord. That's great. So uh, that's why we're doing truly theology proper here, right? As we're dealing uh, literally with the verb theologeo, choreologeo, uh, uh, and uh, this has to do specifically with divine testimony. Um, well, uh, now I, I was kind of faking you out with my big question, you know, and it ended up being about a sandwich, but this time I'm going to really ask you a big question for reals this time. Uh, so uh, here, here it is then. Do you think that it's true to say that the Spirit is the neglected member of the Trinity? And if that is true, why do you think that's happened in the church? Absolutely. Um, it's happened in the church today because it's happened in the church for centuries, I would say. Um, and we can go back to the development of pneumatology in the early church. Um, traditionally, most modern scholars... <clears throat> have seen the development of early pneumatology as pretty uninteresting. That it starts out in the New Testament as just this vague, uh, this vague set of opinions on something that may be a Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit. Um, and gradually over time, uh, this idea starts to develop until finally in the late 4th century, we have the Cappadocian settlement and uh, the Orthodox view of the Trinity. Um, now, that's been pushed back upon by um, some scholars recently who instead have suggested, well, initially there was this burst of what we might call a high pneumatology, drawing on a lot of ideas found in the Jewish world of the time about the Holy Spirit. We see that exemplified by, say, Irenaeus, um, but that then there's this regression where the Holy Spirit becomes much, much less important in early Christian theology, as exemplified in, in folks like Tertullian and Origen, um, and it's not until late 4th century that it becomes an important issue again. And so why the Spirit's been neglected um, I think it's because there's this consistent concern instead for Christology. Um, 
It's like writing a book on the birth of the Trinity that only gives three pages to the spirit, right? I mean, I'm teasing, I'm teasing you, but that's the reality that when people talk about Trinitarian theology, usually they're just meaning Christology. And I think that's been true in the early church, and I think it's been true today. But I think that as, as global Christianity is uh, moving into the global south, it's more charismatic, more Pentecostal. I think people are thinking more about the Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit part of the Trinity? Why don't we just have a Binitarian view of God? Why is it that we had to have a Trinitarian view of God? And that question is part of what my project is is designed to get at. Well, I think we can say it's, it's safe to say that your project is timely, uh, as it does sort of complement uh, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement as a whole. It's certainly the case, though, that you're right, that even in the early church, this was a neglected theme. Uh, some people don't realize that it was, you know, Basil of Caesarea's On the Holy Spirit that was the first treatise written on the on the uh, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, really, in the history of the church. And that doesn't come until the late 4th century. And so sometimes people are unaware that even even in the early church, right, there was a, a slowness to... Uh, to at least theologize properly about uh, the Holy Spirit. And I think your, your, your project is showing that, no, actually, maybe there were some really important things going on before that uh, that we need, to, uh, we need to dig into and to understand. Absolutely. And I think that's where the issue of prosopological exegesis and personhood becomes so important. Because when we look at the Cappadocians in the late 4th century, um, <clears throat> We wonder, how do we get to this point where uh, we're able to speak of three persons, at least in the Latin tradition, using, using that phraseology? And I think that's where the language of prosopological exegesis comes in. You've described this as Trinitarianism through prosopological exegesis, or continuity in prosopological exegesis, I think. Um, and what we see is, in the early centuries, Christians using this language of persona or prosopon to describe uh, how Father, Son, and Spirit are speaking through Scripture. And even if initially that kind of language was being used uh, more from a theatrical context of, of someone on stage putting on a mask, um, there is this development over time, and we see this especially with Tertullian, where this language of persona moves out of that theatrical sphere into something much more ontological about the nature of the Trinity itself. And it's that shift that's pointing us pretty clearly towards Nicaea. And so I think to understand how we end up with the Nicene theology that we do, we have to go back and identify some of these key roots in scriptural exegesis related to terms like persona or prosopon. Yeah. Um, well, Kyle, I, I, I feel like I haven't given you a proper introduction, so why don't I, uh, why don't I give a little of your bio uh, for our audience? Kyle R. Hughes is History Department Chair at Whitfield Academy and Adjunct Professor of Bible and History at Bellhaven University, Atlanta. He's the author of the book we're discussing today, The Trinitarian Testimony of the Spirit, uh, published by Brill in 2018, and has published articles in Novum Testamentum, Vigilii Christiani, and Journal of Early Christian History. His primary theological interests include early Christian scriptural exegesis, spiritual formation in the Anglican tradition, and Christian educational practice. 
Uh, he has a Bachelor of Science from Georgetown uh, and a Master of, of, of Theology from uh, Dallas Theological. Uh, and he also holds his Ph.D. from Radboud University. He lives in Smyrna, Georgia, with his wife and two children, but the third is on the way. And he's an avid fan of Star Wars and strategic board games. So, Kyle, we've heard your bio, uh, but we still don't, still don't really know you. <clears throat> Who or what is a Kyle Hughes? Tell us something more. Yeah. Um, I think the story of my life has been uh, me learning that the only person who really knows who Kyle Hughes is and what he's meant to do is the Lord and not me myself. And I've had a number of grand plans for what my life will be. Uh, at Georgetown, I was uh, really into uh, the Foreign Service path. I was in the Foreign Service School there, uh, wanting to go into national security, government work, all that. But the Lord had different plans for me and uh, took me to seminary. I was pretty seriously considering work on the mission field. I'd spent a number of, of summers overseas doing missions. Um, ended up in a PhD program and then a different PhD program. And uh, now I teach high school in Georgia. And on the surface, a lot of this doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, um, I've been reading a lot of Henry Nouwen recently. And he describes this movement from resentment to gratitude. And when I think about my life and sort of the, the winding path it's taken, and I know, I know, Matt, your life has been similar. You're doing electrical engineering, and now you're doing theology. Um, learning to look back on this windy road I've taken and view it all as grace. And what is God doing with this? Someone who is really into international issues, foreign affairs, has a seminary degree, very passionate about pastoral ministry, uh, publishing scholarly work, but also really believing in the importance of secondary Christian education and trying to formulate uh, a vision for what Christian secondary education in the United States could be. Uh, big picture. Um, I don't know what all that adds up to, but I'm excited to see what, what the Lord has in store. Well, that's, um, I think, beautifully put and profound. So we got to get a little less serious. Um, here's a follow-up question then. If you had to be eaten by a dinosaur, which one would you choose to devour you? Uh, probably a T-Rex, because that's my son Asher's favorite dinosaur. So... Yeah, you just got. If you get eaten by a T Rex, you're just going to go quick. It's probably not going to be as painful as if, you know, you were slow, slowly nibbled on by a brontosaurus. Yeah, that's yeah that sounds good. right. Yeah. Have you ever been skiing? Yes, um, I grew up skiing a fair amount. Uh, my parents moved to Colorado when I was in college, and unfortunately, because that coincided with me getting married and having little itty bitty children. Uh, I've not been able to ski out there as much as I would like, but it is absolutely beautiful. Have you had a chance to ski out west? Oh, yes. I, 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 I skied a lot, uh, as uh, especially when I was in high school and yeah. college, when I had money, which was strange that I had money in college. I'm not sure how that worked. Yeah, right. But I, it seems like I did. It's but, because you, did, yeah. you didn't have seven kids then. <laughs> it's a, yes, I suppose. Yeah, and, and now I'm exiled in the Midwest, so... <laughs> You know, um, yeah, there's the skiing is not quite as uh, dynamic here. Um, yeah, um, well, uh, well, we'll have some more sort of speed round questions probably uh, for you later as as we get on. 
Um, so you, you, you kind of began to get into this a little bit earlier, but I think it's one of the more helpful things for sort of framing your project and its significance for our audience. And um, you were starting to get into the different paradigms that deal with how the spirit came to be regarded as fully divine. And I'd like you to do a little bit more on that because I think it really it helps, um, helps all of us appreciate uh, the true significance of your project and why it's really going to be disruptive for the dominant scholarly paradigms. So could you lay out the traditional model and then uh, what, what you call at least uh, the Ayers-Barnes model for us? Sure. So the traditional model... Uh, I, I sometimes call the slow and steady approach. Um, and so if we're looking at, again, the New Testament, um, we're, we're not finding any kind of consistent description of the nature or the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, there, we look at the Apostolic Fathers, there's really not much there. Um, and so if you look at any of the traditional sort of volumes on theology, uh, Adolf von Harnack, uh, Bethune Baker, Henry Sweet, um, even more modern ones, uh, Pelican, um, Stanley Burgess's work on the Holy Spirit, uh, Greg Allison. Um, you find the same story in all of these, which again is simply that we have the slow and steady trajectory of theological refinement and eventually, sort of mysteriously, that culminates in uh, the Nicene definition. And so the pre-Nicene period is then viewed as these dark ages in terms of pneumatology, uh, which lack a developed theology of the spirit. And so if you open pretty much any textbook on uh, the development of doctrine, that's the view that you're going to find. Um, what's interesting is that Scholarship has, I think, at last begun to criticize that traditional view. And you referred to the work of Ayers and Barnes, uh, who wrote a series of articles in 2008 in which they articulated a different paradigm for thinking about the development of pre-Nicene pneumatology. And they have this, this vision of three stages that I can break down a little more. Um, the first stage is a stage in which uh, early Christian writers are receiving, continuing, and developing various Jewish approaches to the spirit. Um, so around this time, there existed within Judaism what we might call a high pneumatology. So the spirit is viewed as a creator, as an angel, as wisdom, even the consort of God. And so there's this complex synthesis of Jewish traditions and Christian, Christian doctrine, uh, which they describe as a relatively high pneumatology. According to this scheme, though, in, in the second stage, uh, this Jewish-Christian pneumatology is abandoned uh, in the third century by Tertullian and Origen. And they explain this as a response to the threat of monarchianism. Um, and what they're doing is, as they look at texts that had previously been thought to describe the spirit, like those in Proverbs 8 that were speaking of wisdom, uh, instead come to be applied to uh, the pre-incarnate son. Uh, and so it's this rejection of Jewish-Christian ways of thinking about the spirit 
uh, in which some of these ideas about the spirit are transferred from the spirit to the son uh, that generates what they view as a period of low pneumatology. Um, and then finally, once we get into the 350s or so, we have a third stage um, in which, as folks are focused on the unity of the Godhead, um, these writers are going back, looking at earlier writers, and recovering some of those earlier approaches to the spirit found in the first stage. And Augustine uh, represents the sort of climax or pinnacle of, of these views. Uh, Basil, you mentioned, absolutely. Um, and so those are the three stages that are certainly a major refinement over the old slow and steady view. But as I argue in this book, um, may not fully capture some of the dynamics at work in the pre-Nicene period. Yeah, and and as part of all this, I suppose it's, it's important to say that there's always been a a very strong strand of New Testament scholarship. I think of people like Gordon Fee and his book, you know, God's Empowering Presence, you know, that have advocated for um, emerging ideas of the Spirit's full divinity, um, mainly as the Spirit is involved in doing things that only God can do. But when we talk about theology proper. Um, the the discussion, I guess, of the growth of of pneumatology has been that it was, there was a slowness to specifically call out the spirit as God uh, in terms of theology proper, and that's that's sort of the, why we have these two different models: uh, the slow and steady model, as you call it, the one hand, and then we might call the other one the you know the, the Jewish growth to decline to recovery model. Um, and uh, and so yeah, it's 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 mainly with regard to theology proper that we're talking about this, not with regard to the idea that the spirit wasn't involved in doing um, things that would witness to its divinity. Um, and and there's an excellent book too that talks about uh, the experience of the spirit in the early centuries. Um, so it's not that nothing has been written on the spirit generally in the early period. Of course, there's a lot of studies of Montanism and important things related to that. Uh, but again, this question of why why does the Holy Spirit need to be a third person of the Trinity, and how does that connect to scriptural exegesis, that has not been explored. Yeah. One of the things that, um, as part of this narrative about um, there being sort of an a, a early Jewish phase that, that might... Um, that I thought is a helpful way of illustrating it. You had a, a part that I think particularly grabbed me as I was reading through your book uh, that I enjoyed, and it has to do with the idea that there was competition between early Christians and between the Jewish community, the emerging rabbinic community there, uh, over how to properly script, do scriptural exegesis. And we see some of that reflected in the dialogue with Trifo, but also certainly with Origen and, and with others, as it's very clear that there was an exegetical competition going on. So here, um, I'm reading a little bit from your page 71 here. Uh, as you say the following, accordingly, rabbinic exegesis interpreted such two powers passages in a way that preserved the unity of God. Now, to take just one example, a passage in the Babylonian Talmud that purports to cite a late second century tradition provides the following interpretation of Genesis 19.24, uh, and this is the passage about the Lord reigning, you know, um, fire and brimstone from the Lord. Uh, and so uh, this relates to then uh, the key two powers texts that are central to Justin's exegesis. Here's the text then from the Babylonian Talmud. <clears throat> a man said to Rabbi Ishmael ben Rabbi Yosei, uh, is it, it is written then, 
the Lord caused to rain upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord. It should have said, from him. A certain launderman said to him, let me answer him. It is written, and Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. It should have said, my wives. But that is just how scripture says things. And here too, that is just how the scripture says things. Ishmael said to him, how do you know that? Uh, And then uh, this uh, launderman says, I heard it from the public lesson of Rabbi Meyer. So, uh, yeah, how does this text illustrate something of the Jewish dynamic um, that, uh, that is part of this early phase and that you aren't questioning, you're just saying that's not, the, that's not all there is to it. We need to realize there's something more going on. Absolutely. Um, so what we see Justin doing in uh, the dialogue with Trifo um, is this account of arguing over the meaning of Scripture uh, with Trifo, uh, this, this Jewish thinker, and we don't have to get into the debate of whether this was real or fictionalized. Um, this is just what Justin is presenting. And it's, it's fascinating that Justin engages in this pretty extensive exegesis of Genesis chapter 19, uh, looking at especially this verse 1924, uh, about the Lord causing to rain upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord. You have two lords. And it's pretty clear that there's a deliberate engagement uh, with similar exegetical conversations taking place uh, in the rabbinic community. Um, and, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do throughout this book is locate these debates over how to interpret Scripture in the historical context of the writer's that I'm examining, Justin, Irenaeus, and Tertullian, and that we can't understand these as decontextualized, abstract debates about biblical interpretation, but rather these were deeply rooted in significant social and historical uh, struggles for religious identity and power in these early centuries. And so when we're thinking about Justin and his exegesis, of something like Genesis 19.24, we need to think really carefully about how even in Justin's day, there was continued interaction, tension, and hostility between Jews and Christians, the struggle for identity uh, or a struggle for covenant and scripture, as one book has it. Um, and so I think it's, it's really important that we bring out the fact that Justin's interpretation of a text like this isn't done in isolation, but it's being done alongside rabbinic interpretations of the exact same passage. Yeah, and I, I think in um, yeah in this passage, the exegetical competition then has to do with um, whether or not this is capable of of us seeing uh, two different lords in the text: one that is the Lord God Himself, and the other is a different Lord uh, that is somehow being referred to as um, uh, uh, God in some way, so that we end up having two powers, or whether or not uh, this is just the way this is just an idiom is essentially what uh, the launderman wants to say. He says, "Hey, I got that all from Rabbi Meyer." So um, yeah, but uh, that is maybe not our most compelling text. Um, I think there are some other texts in Scripture, uh, like Psalm one ten, um, like. Uh, 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 you know, uh, Psalm two seven. You know that um, that have uh, more potential, right, for um, seeing multiple persons in view. Yeah, and on and on that note about uh, competition and, and the reference of of Lord and God, I found it fascinating that 
in the context of Justin's uh, conflict with Judaism, that Justin is seeking to expand the possible reference of Lord and God to include the Son. When we get to Irenaeus, even though Irenaeus is utilizing the exact same method of presupological exegesis, uh, that he's looking at a lot of the exact same texts even, for Irenaeus, the concern is, is really the opposite. Um, against the Gnostics, he wants to limit the reference uh, of, of Lord and God. Um, so, again, taking that historical context into consideration can yield some pretty interesting insights, I think. Well, we'll do a little bit more on how um, uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian move beyond Justin, although I think we'll see, uh, at least in your view, that Justin is the main theological innovator here. But let's uh, let's do a speed round first, uh, and uh, and then we'll we'll circle back around to some more with uh, with uh, how Irenaeus and Tertullian develop Justin. So, you ready for a speed round? Okay. All right. What's a trend in society that scares you? Everything related to social media and smartphones and technology. Do you think cows are conscious, uh, self-conscious, self-aware? If so, should we eat them anyway? Eat them, yes. We already talked about how we enjoy barbecue, and you can't have good barbecue if you're not eating cows and whatnot. Okay. Are they self-aware? According to Chick-fil-A advertisements, which are all around Atlanta, (laughs) uh, I guess the answer would be yes, because they tell us to eat more chicken. Uh, do you like the music group The Beatles? No, that was before my time. Yeah, well, I mean, you can still listen to stuff yeah. before your time, but if you do, you might find The Beatles are disappointing, at least in my view. Um, all right, uh, what's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last 50 years? Uh, I would say N.T. Wright's series, Christian Origins and the Question of God. No, uh, you just chose four books. I don't know if that's fair. I have to pair. pick one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, for me personally, Jesus and the Victory of God. Yeah. That, um, that, gosh, I have a hard time with this question, too, but I, I have a hard time saying that wasn't the most important book for me. Yeah. I mean, generally, E.P. Yeah. E. Sanders Yeah. Uh, yeah. for inaugurating that, that whole trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, something you find embarrassing. Basically, being a parent, every every minute is filled with some kind of embarrassing moment, either that they're doing or that they're saying to you. Um, I constantly feel embarrassed, um, like when my daughter says that, you know, oh, mommies are so much better than daddies. You know, it's just it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, well, they they, they provide. I could give you some good stories, but yeah, this is a speed round. Uh, okay, uh, last one for this speed round, at least. Uh, do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, my wife and I have thought about this once or twice, I think, and I think I've come down on the side of no. All right. Well, it's a speed round, so you don't have to defend your view. Um, all right. Uh, ready to get back into some, some more meat and potatoes here. Uh, we were starting to, dis- to discuss, at least, um, how uh, Irenaeus uh, and Tertullian pick up the ball from Justin uh, Justin has uh, this sort of nascent, uh, you know, Trinitarian testimony motif, uh, but uh, you pay very careful attention to how Irenaeus and Tertullian use it in slightly different ways, um, but carry on that tradition. How about you nuance that for Irenaeus as we as we start? Sure. So Irenaeus, uh, it's pretty clear that he is explicitly relying on Justin. 
Uh, he develops the same prosopological approach. He even utilizes some of the exact same texts. The language of Theologao, Curielagao, um, continues over into Irenaeus if we you know, backtrack the Latin into the Greek. Um, so there's a lot of similarities, which makes it really fertile ground for comparison. Um, obviously, as I mentioned before, the most important difference is the context. Irenaeus is writing not so much in the struggle with Judaism to forge a distinctively Christian identity, but instead Irenaeus is uh, trying to formulate an Orthodox Christian identity over and against that of Valentinian Gnosticism. Um, so we see a different context, and as I mentioned before, what we see him doing is he's using this method to instead expand the potential reference for the term God and Lord. And something else we see Irenaeus doing that's interesting is that Irenaeus identifies the spirit not just as speaking through scripture as, as a person, but he goes beyond that to elsewhere in his writings identify the spirit as the source of revelation concerning the divine economy. And we get into this more in, in Tertullian. Uh, but if we're thinking about what does it mean in Justin for the Spirit to call the Father and the Son Lord and God, I think Irenaeus is picking that up and developing that into this broader vision of, of the divine economy and the way in which human beings are brought into the Trinitarian life of the Godhead. Yeah, that's 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 uh, I think uh, very important because uh, this sort of develops, uh, I guess, ideas of not just nomenclature, right? That it's just not like well, we can call, um, you know, spirit God, you know, perhaps we can call Father God, we can call Son God, uh, to to move beyond what the name uh, is to sort of an interior life um, that they're being brought into. Um, so what? In terms of like, um, can you flesh out the theological importance of that a little bit more for how that contributes specifically to the doctrine of the Trinity? I mean, I think we can see that best if we then push it further along the sequence into Tertullian, if you don't mind. Um, Tertullian does things a little differently than Irenaeus. Um, for instance, the testifying function of the Spirit is really only implicit in the quotations themselves. Uh, it's not explicitly referenced in his explanation of those quotations. Um, and yet, and yet, uh, Tertullian is even more clearly than Irenaeus identifying the Spirit as a distinct divine person who is tasked with leading believers into this better understanding of the mystery of the Trinity. And I like to take us back to that idea of divine testimony. Um, that if you want to have um, a reliable witness, if you will, to the nature of the Father and the Son, wouldn't the best witness, the best giver of testimony to them, uh, also be a divine person? Um, you think about John's Gospel, some of the language in First in John, um, this language of truth and the Spirit is truth, uh, and the Spirit's testimony then is reliable, because the Spirit is divine, and the Spirit, as we see in Irenaeus and Tertullian, has this special function of revealing the divine economy, of revealing the Godhead. Yeah, that's, um, uh, I think, yeah, right on the money. And um, 
I think we'll be able to do a little bit more uh, to um, to bring out um, some of this with regard to Tertullian in just a minute. But let's back up and um, let's maybe ask a question that might be on some people's minds, um, as it's certainly been on my mind sometimes as I've worked on this material, and I'm curious how how it's been on yours, is, um, and maybe you've even had to field this question, but if someone were to come up to you and say, um, you know, well, Kyle, uh, this is really neat that Justin and Irenaeus and Tertullian are interpreting the Old Testament in this, you know, uh, prosopological, person-centered way, uh, how fascinating, how quaint, how charming, but it's a bunch of fanciful nonsense. How How would you respond to that that charge that I that that the the early fathers are just arbitrary here. Is this coming from a Christian perspective, or, or what? Who's my critic here? Um, I was probably imagining it mostly from a Christian perspective because non-Christians aren't probably as invested in this dialogue, and there are certainly some uh, strands of Christianity today that look askance at the fathers. I think, I think we're, we're moving into a time period where that's not true anymore. Uh, classically, that's been obviously, um, more Protestants, uh, have tended to be more skeptical about the fathers. And we're, we're kind of moving into a, a, a time period, I think, of healthier reappropriation here. Um, but nevertheless, I think there are still some, especially maybe who are wed to a historical critical methods of exegesis, um, exclusively so. I mean, not that we shouldn't all be paying attention to those things, uh, but maybe exclusively wed to them, uh, who might say, well, this is all, um, this is all interesting. Uh, but are you, are you serious in, in, uh, in that you think this is somehow important for actually defining God? Yeah. So in the book, I, I try and strike, uh, a historical perspective, and in the book, the vast majority of the way that I'm, I'm writing is not necessarily to say this is right or this is wrong. This is simply a historical observation of the way in which um, early church fathers approach scripture. And I think it's important to start with that because if that's really our goal as historians, uh, we're, we're truly going to try and exegete the texts rather than eisegete them and read back what we want to into the fathers. Um, I'm doing a book review right now on a book in which, a book in which, uh, there's criticism of creation science people who have read back, uh, their literal interpretation of, of Genesis 1 into the fathers. And so I, I think there's something to be said before anything else about just the importance of good historical work that lets the fathers speak for themselves without passing judgment on them. Now, that being said, from the standpoint that I have as a Christian who believes that uh, the Trinity is a real thing and is central to our understanding of of faith, um, I think this is actually a really exciting way of thinking about the development of Trinitarian doctrine. Um, because I'm arguing, along with, with the work that you've done, that the way we got the Trinity was, in fact, deep reflection on Scripture itself. Um, you know, we could talk for hours, probably, about the relation between Scripture and tradition, and why having Scripture, thinking about Scripture apart from tradition, is not a wise idea. But in this particular instance, 
what this study, I think, is, is showing, and I think could be helpful for uh, your critic here, is that they're offering us a way of thinking about the development of the Trinity in a way that takes Scripture seriously. And if there's concerns about their prosopological way of reading Old Testament passages, we could just simply point to the New Testament itself, in which the writers of the New Testament are utilizing this method quite often. And so what we see Justin, Irenaeus, and Tertullian doing is simply an extension of what the inspired writers of the New Testament have already done. Yeah, I think that's 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 a certainly a challenging question though, and there are so many different angles to approach it. I think your your own study um, is certainly more on the historical critical end of it, right? I think you're not. It's not that you're. Uh, it's very theologically invested. I mean, deeply so because that's what the historical topic is. Um, but on the one hand, I think you're mostly trying to be a good historian, so I appreciate um, uh, you kind of um, cracking the window open a little bit there and letting us see. Uh, beyond the historical critical study, um, yeah, how you might deal with larger hermeneutical questions, is I think those are sometimes the most important in our culture. So that's great. Um, so anyway, we, we had started talking about uh, Tertullian and the divine economy and how uh, prosopological exegesis is a way in which um, we are invited into the inner Trinitarian life and that there's, uh, there's testimony with regard to um, uh, the different members of the Trinity with, uh, with how they relate to one another, uh, at least somewhat. But the Spirit plays the leading role uh, in that uh, in your project. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Tertullian because both he's a key figure in your study and he's a, he's a controversial figure in church history. And um, maybe you could help frame this a little bit for people who especially need a refresher on their church heritage. Um, uh, we have, on the one hand, Tertullian himself, who fell into what would come to be regarded as a, as a heresy, Montanism, or the New Prophecy. And on the other hand, Tertullian is combating something that the Church as a whole will agree is a heresy, right, as he ends up combating uh, a specific version of modalism that, uh, that, uh, that is actually important for understanding this project, too. So can you, um, can you maybe sketch those two... Um, those two heresies and how prosopological exegesis, uh, as we find it in Tertullian, um, is a tool that helps us to understand uh, better the doctrine of the Trinity that emerges uh, with respect to those two heresies, Montanism and modalism. Yeah, so starting with Montanism uh, or the new prophecy, um, sometimes it's, it's cast as a proto-charismatic movement. Um, it's not entirely fair, but it's also not entirely wrong. Um, we have this uh, outburst of, of prophets and prophecies um, who emerge in, in Tertullian's time. Um, and there's this emphasis on uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's reflected in Tertullian's writing, and especially this key work that I look at, uh, against Praxis. And in Against Praxis, against Praxis Chapter 2, I think we get a good feel for, for what Tertullian's doing. Tertullian says, In truth, as always, and now even more so, being better instructed by the paraclete, the leader into all truth, we believe that there is indeed one only God, yet under this dispensation or economy, that this one only God has also a son, his word, who proceeded from himself by whom all things were made 
and without whom nothing has been made, who then, in accordance with his promise sent from the Father the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the sanctifier of the faith of those who believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that this rule has come down from the beginning of the gospel, he, the Holy Spirit, will prove. And so a couple interesting things about this. The appeal that Tertullian is making for his uh, theological rule is from the instruction of the paraclete. And that language of the paraclete um, points us pretty clearly to Montanism. But what we see is he's using this language and his background um, in this regard uh, to combat modalism. Uh, Modalism, the belief that God is uh, one and that he manifests, if you will, in in different forms. But it's really more like, uh, to use a modern example, uh, switching out different costumes uh, or putting on a mask in different situations. And so we see that reflected in this passage where Tertullian says that we believe that there is indeed one only God, yet under this dispensation that this God has also a son and who sent the Holy Spirit. And so we have three and one. Um, so there's this, int- yeah, you, you pointed out this very interesting fact about Tertullian. Um, and there's a there's an article that's very good from several years back that I drew on uh, entitled the, uh, it's the Heretical Roots of Orthodox Theology, um, talking about how Tertullian is fighting for orthodoxy. Um, even as he's drawing on some perhaps heretical ideas of his own. It makes him a very complex, very fascinating figure. So as we as we sort of think about the way in which Tertullian then positions himself against this modal mar- uh, monarchianism, um, this, this modalism as it was con- concerned with monarchianism is the idea that God is only one principle or one thing. So that's the idea that ends up being orthodox, more or less, as long as it's not turned in a modalistic direction where God, you know, takes on certain kinds of masks. So um, some have thought that prosopological exegesis declined, uh, right, in subsequent church histories, precisely over concerns that it was susceptible to modalism. Um, do you have, I know your study proper didn't focus on the time period after Tertullian. You do a little bit, right? You go a little bit beyond that and look at Cyprian of Carthage and you look at Novation. Um and uh, you, you would, you'd sifted some material in origin, but um, any sense of whether or not do you think that narrative is true, that um, we did see a decline in interest in prosopological exegesis, or at least in uh, a reticence to mobilize it um, because of concerns over modalism? Absolutely. Um, I think I actually call that chapter Tertullian and the Decline of the Trinitarian Testimony of the Spirit. Um, precisely because when we look at his successors, um, Cyprian, Novation, um, they were very concerned in some respects about, about uh, Tertullian's relationship with what came to be known as Montanism. And so if it was the case, and it was, that Tertullian's development of the spirit as a distinct divine person was in fact intricately linked to his desire to promote and defend the new prophecy, Montanism, well, then if Cyprian and Novation want to leave behind parts of Tertullian's legacy that were most clearly influenced by the new prophecy, 
well, then maybe we're going to have to cut some of that prosopological exegesis bit. Um, but in the long term, the fact that Tertullian used prosopological exegesis to develop, again, that language of persona, um, even as the explicit prosopological method fades away, this language of persona, which is now being used to talk about the internal dynamics of the Godhead, um, that is going to stay and be obviously foundational for Nicene theology. Yeah, no, that, I, that, that's, that's my sense of how it develops, but I don't think I, uh, at the same time, have the same sort of expertise in the era beyond the New Testament. And my own work has tended to cease uh, more or less with Irenaeus. I've been kind of dabbled beyond that. But I think that um, it's helpful that you press beyond that a little farther into the, the, the pre-Nicene material and um, and uh, and show a plausible um, trajectory and explanation for um, the role of prosopological exegesis and its decline, uh, even though it does end up making, uh, in the long run, uh, perhaps the decisive impact for <coughs> the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, well, uh, how about you? Are you ready for a second speed round? And then I got a couple wrap-up questions. Time is flying along. So what do you think? Okay, let's do it. All right, uh, mountains or the beach? Uh, I was just at the beach and it was kind of cold, so let's go with mountains where you can ski. Have you ever driven a motorcycle? No. Do you want to? No, no. Yeah, you don't want to die while you have those small children. No, I um, mean, I've, I've driven, quote-unquote, uh, camels and horses and those kind of things, and that's that's plenty scary for me. Okay. Are you willing to sing a song for me right now, on the spot? Can you sing a song? Uh, sure. Really, uh, every day my kids are going around singing songs from Daniel Tiger. Are you familiar with that from, from oh, your kids? Yeah, this is funny. I was just talking about Daniel Tiger. I think it was on was it on the last episode of Matthew Thomas. I was talking about Daniel Tiger. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, I, think it's, uh, I think it's rich for theological exploration. You have this weird culture in which there's a hereditary monarchy that no one seems to mind. And like the economy, there's no, you know, unit of, you know, trade or, or currency. Um, everything's just free for everyone in this totalitarian world. It's very strange. <laughs> You've analyzed Daniel Tiger more than I have. I try it's, to avoid, I, I, we turn it on just as an excuse to avoid, you know. Uh, anyway, so let's hear, let's yes. hear some Daniel so, Tiger then. How about when you're sick, rest is best, rest is best. I've heard that one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's important. Yeah. yeah, it's good advice. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, how about this one? Um, the scariest thing about growing older is? Having to get up to go to the bathroom at night. <laughs> um, all right. An important speed round addition here. Will you buy me a smoked brisket sandwich at our next SBL? Yes, absolutely. Although I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm, I'll be at the next one though because uh, of a new baby. But the right. year after, yes. Okay. All right. Um, yes. Do you ever turn up the music in your house and then shake your booty? No, no one, no one wants that. No, no one wants that. Well, you no might do it anyway that. if no, no one wants it. No. All right. Uh, if you're coming to my house for dinner, what's the one thing you're hoping that I don't serve? Uh, some kinds of raw seafood kind of freak me out. Yeah. Um, 
So maybe I'm not. I'm not going to serve you that. Yeah. No, don't, no worry. No, nah. I'm not into sushi. I'm not into any of that stuff. No, you got to okay. you got you to smoke your meats. Yeah. Well, well, we're in agreement here. I think we could eat <laughs> we could eat dinner together very easily. All right. Well, as as we start to wrap things um, up together, I think that um, your your study um, I think is uh, is very important, uh, and it's going to be disruptive for um, I think the dominant paradigms in our field for how Trinitarian theology came together. How about I give you a chance to give a wrap up statement? Then, what do you think are your most important results? How would you how would you you know crisply articulate that as best you can? Yeah, I think, number one, we need to have a more nuanced view of the development of early Christian pneumatology. And as I said at the beginning, in light of um, sort of charismatic Pentecostal growth around the world, um, it's important that we think deeply about who the Holy Spirit is, why the Holy Spirit matters, how we got the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Trinity. Um, So I'd like to think that my book makes a contribution to... Um, that broader discussion about about who the Holy Spirit is and why he matters. Um, specifically, I, I think this is a, a call to uh, recover Justin Martyr as an important thinker for pneumatology. Um, I can't find anyone who's uh, really had much of anything to say about Justin as a pneumatological thinker. Um, but I, th- I think he's actually initiating a very important trajectory here. And I think that um, any evaluation of Justin Martyr's legacy should take that into account. And then finally, I think in the broad picture about the development of Trinitarian theology, um, that prosopological exegesis and just scripture uh, more generally are in fact at, are at the core of, of the development of these doctrines. Well, uh, that's certainly, uh, I think, uh, a nice summary of some of the emphases in your book. Um, how about a, another question that's related to this? Uh, we discussed earlier the neglect of the Spirit. It's being recovered, obviously, within uh, Pentecostalism and theologically being recovered to a degree. Um, do you have any pragmatic advice, especially for people who are in contexts that don't tend to emphasize the Holy Spirit? Has this study um, caused you to reflect any more on, like, practically speaking for the church today, is there something that we should be doing different that we could in some way recover both the theology and maybe the praxis of spirit life? Yeah, something my pastor talks a lot about is, you know, Jesus in John says it's actually better for him to go because he is going to send the spirit Um, in the sense of if you really like Jesus, well, then you're really going to like the Holy Spirit. Um, And I think a lot of our churches do a good job of really liking Jesus, but what would it mean to really like the Holy Spirit and not do that in a weird way involving snake handling and and what have you? Um, And I think this gets back to some of my interest in spiritual formation and and what have you. Um, But just this constant sense of inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives, uh, making room to listen to the Spirit, uh, praying to the Spirit. Um, I think these are very practical practices that we can engage in that'll be formative. That's great. I think that's a great way to wrap up as I think we're out of time. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thank you. It's been a real delight to have you. This is Matthew Bates for On Script, and I've been talking with Kyle Hughes 
uh, about his important new book, The Trinitarian Testimony of the Spirit, Prosopological Exegesis, and the Development of Pre-Nicene Pneumatology uh, in the Supplements to Vigiliae Christianae. Uh, published by Brill, 2018. There's a link on the website if you would like to purchase it. I will warn you uh, that it is a bit pricey, so I think you should buy it anyway. Uh, But when you do, uh, you should also write a little note to our friends at Brill and uh, tell them you'd really like to see it out in paperback. Until next time. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 